Bonds and equities. Why the conflict between value and news flow has left us feeling confused. Hungary, the place to be and not just for your holidays. And China's buying Japanese bonds. The Japanese are buying everybody else's bonds. Where will it all end? Midday on Monday, the 23rd of August, this is Loz and Belly. The Loz and Belly podcast is brought to you by GLC Limited and is subject to the disclaimer at the end of the programme. Lawrence is away, so I'm delighted to be joined by Celia Sepping. Good morning. There was some pretty negative economic data last week, wasn't there? Things aren't looking much better than since last week, since we were sitting here. US data has been quite uniformly weak, except for maybe IP numbers, but more Mm. of the sort of forward-looking survey data was all quite poor, and the labour market. And very disappointing initial claims. These are the weekly unemployment claims. Probably the best weekly indicator we've got, not that there's very much competition, and they rose quite strongly towards the 500 level, which would be consistent with zero growth in the overall economy. So it's now the sort of third week of rising claims, which mm. you can't say yet is, is a clear trend, but I guess it is quite worrisome already. And you do see some of the banks putting out forecasts already that the unemployment rate in the US may head up back to 10% by end of the year. And we had some very bad Japanese GDP data, substantially worse than expected. And the year-of-a-year nominal GDP was minus 1.8 or something. So that was pretty crummy. So the macro data last week, generally quite weak, and certainly raised fears for people like me, who'd be generally optimistic, that instead of a pause that refreshes, you might get a self-feeding significant downturn and uh, someone put the probability of a double dip at 30%. That would be negative growth again of 30%. It's still less than 50-50, but far too high for comfort. We don't see any panic in the markets yet. Mm. You know, Things are sort of slowly drifting lower, but I guess if this sort of soft patch does carry on, then you know, obviously the survey data is going to be more and more negative and then can easily become self-fulfilling and, and feed into real economies. The general point here is that a bit of subtrend growth briefly is okay, particularly as... The quoted sector is probably doing better than the unquoted sector. We've discussed this before. And in particular, the US is earning profits and creating jobs abroad. And we've just had a terrific earnings season. So what we don't want is that weakness to continue or spread so that you then get a big cut in corporate profits. People have nudged down their 2011 earnings forecasts, but they're still pretty healthy. And with bond yields at extremely low levels... If you discount those earnings back, you get a very cheap stock market. So our concern is news flow is negative. We want some stronger economic data to feel that the recovery is coming back. And that news flow hasn't been positive, but the value is very cheap. So that's leaving us confused on equities, which we think are cheap, but the news flow is negative. And it's a similar story on bonds, where not only have you got low and declining inflation pretty much everywhere, but obviously weak growth. And the Fed effectively doing more QE. It's a bit complicated, this, but they were going to let their mortgage-backed securities run off. Now they're going to buy treasuries with the proceeds. And there's a possibility the Bank of England might do more QE. So it keeps the bid on the bond side as well. Recently, you know, equities and bonds have traded not in zinc that much anymore. And mm. I think it's a clear signal that bonds are likely to stay quite bad towards the end of the year. But... I guess, yeah, listening to what you were just saying, the question is, you know, what's going to be the trigger for data to turn around or for this sort of soft patch to end? On one hand, you may have a bit more stimulus from monetary side, but there isn't that much scope. 
fiscally, you know, governments are quite restricted already. Yes, it's a tricky one. If you want to put the positive side of the United States, there's definitely an improvement in financial conditions. The Fed's loan officers survey showed continued improving, so there's better supply of bank lending. Lending standards are easing, and one of the comments that I thought was very encouraging was that the reason that banks are being forced to improve or relax their lending standards is because of competition. That's what you want to push more lending, competition. Demand's still pretty weak, but lending standards improving. There's also been a further substantial decline in the mortgage rate, which would feed refinancing. Now, a lot of that's blocked from all those people who don't have enough equity in their property. House prices declined, and we were hoping that maybe the authorities would change the rules, which would allow Fannie and Freddie to facilitate refinancing. And, you know, provided you don't take any cash outs, equity withdrawal, as we call it, that would be a better credit, lower coupon, less likely to default. But they haven't changed the rules and doesn't look like they're going to, at least non-time soon. So the markets are providing an improvement, but it could be explosively stronger if they did that policy initiative. But rates are generally improving. Another positive is that company cash flow is in great shape. So M&A is very strong. One of the biggest M&A flows. This year. This year, yeah. It's normally the quiet month, very quiet month, of course. But it's the strongest month so far. So lots of M&A, obviously, is good news for stock market. We think the economy is going to recover, basically. It's just going to take yeah. time. Some of the very cyclically driven uh, sectors like yeah, construction, consumer durables, there are such suppressed levels already that yeah, either we get a serious double dip for things to get worse from these kind of levels mm. or more likely things should look up. So we're looking for things to improve, but we're not confident that now's the time to go out and buy equities and sell bonds yet. We're just kind of sitting on on the sidelines a bit. Europe's uh, purchasing managers indices all came out, well, Germany and France's and the composite came out today. And they're important because they're the first for August. And it depends on which way you look at this cup, half full or half empty. But basically, they were quite a bit stronger than you might have expected, given the idea that Q2 was great in Europe, but after that it wasn't. And that lots of problems occurring in the peripheral area, but actually not bad. The discrepancy is very evident between the core and Mm. the more smaller economies. If you put these numbers together, we saw one estimate suggesting they were consistent with quarter-on-quarter growth of 0.7, which to you guys over the Atlantic, you'd annualise up to just under 3%. That would be a great result for Europe, if that's true. And I'm still a bit bemused as to how Europe can push ahead so strongly. I thought it was partly just the fact that they are a bit lagged. The US has clearly slowed. Europe next, but on the base of these PMIs, it's still well north of 50, which is a significant expansion. So that's encouraging. With this conflict between value and news flow, we're kind of looking for trading opportunities that aren't simply risk on, risk off, aren't simply directional. And uh, Huff Check seems quite a good one. Yes. You're a bit of a fan of this, aren't you? Compulsory Central Eastern European (laughs) (laughs) discussion here. Yeah, clearly, if you're not quite sure about the direction, we're trying to think more about relative value ideas here and um, being long Hungarian foreign against Czech crown. The sort of negativity around Hungary has been there, I'd say, for years. I can't remember the times when people generally would love Hungary. Because, yeah, obviously, it started off with major fiscal problems, High debt level, four years ago it was running maybe budget deficit of, of around 8%. The other is the FX borrowing issue where, you know, Hungarians have been borrowing in uh, Swiss francs, 
which has moved sharply against These them. These are mortgages, yes, particularly denominated in Swiss francs by people who earn all their money in Hungarian, in Hungarian forints. So that's not been a good trade, has it? No. Um, basically, there are reasons why people have always viewed Hungary in negative light. Um, and what was but, the incoming government's comment on the prospects of the country, comparing them to Greece? The new government came in and said we might default. And the clearly IMF a very good PR. <laughs> and couldn't <laughs> agree with the IMF, so they had to pack their bags. And So there's a massive amount of Hungarian negative sentiment towards Hungary. The reality is I think things aren't that bad. And I think people over the years have just become sort of complacently negative about it and failed to see any improvements that the country actually has made. Why the previous government lost elections is because they carried through a massive fiscal package, you know, which is very austerity austerity package, yeah, which was obviously very harsh on people. But they brought that deficit down from eight, nine percent to just under four percent now. So the deficit's under four percent, which by world standards is very low. I was actually looking through comparing the sort of gross adjusted fiscal position of different countries across Europe. Obviously, Hungary's had barely any growth because domestic economy has just been crushed down by the fiscal mm. austerity measures. So if you adjust, sort of cyclically adjust the uh, deficit numbers, actually Hungary has one of the better fiscal positions in Europe. You know, really? If we talk about, say, 2 to 3% fiscal deficit cyclically adjusted in Hungary, you have obviously uh, countries like Spain around 8%, actually even Poland about 6%. Poland is always seen as a much better country. And they've got and a primary fiscal surplus? Yeah, and so, a small current account surplus. And a current so. account surplus. And we had some surveys, not the best indicator, but, you know, the survey data showed a significant improvement in business confidence. And the European PMIs, OK, they're down a bit, but they're still way ahead of 50 both of these countries are very linked to European growth, especially mm. the manufacturing uh, side of it. And they are quite comparable, Hungary and Czech, compared to Poland, which is much bigger, more sort of self-sustaining economy. Mm. But you know, given that everyone's so negative in Hungary, it's actually offering a decent carry, while Czech is, is quite expensive as a currency and eventually will suffer in the same way as Hungary if things in, in Europe t- turn down. So, so, so the people, value argument is definitely... People for, are too negative on Hungary, complacent on Czech... So we like buying the Hungarian foreign against the Czech crown. And the advantage of that trade, it's got a little bit of directionality and it. it's slightly positive beta, but not much. So it's not, you can make money when risk is off and make money when risk is on. So we quite like that. It's a slightly different trade from the usual ones. The other thing that caught my eye was last week's portfolio flows showed massive buying by Japanese institutions of foreign bonds. I mean, it was a record week. And if you take the last few months, they're huge. So the Japanese, at the time when their currency's been strengthening, have been piling into foreign bonds in a big way, and no doubt have been partly responsible for the incredible rally in world bond markets. At the same time, the Chinese have been buying lots of Japanese bonds. So the, the Japanese maybe have been selling their own bond market or investing cash, but they've been investing abroad. Uh, The Chinese have been more than offsetting that, possibly by putting more of the reserves into Japanese markets and pushing up the yen, 
probably in the process. And the, the rise of the yen is one of the most significant, the most significant move amongst the, uh, the G7 currencies, I would say. They had this big meeting this week and yeah. then nothing. Often I just cannot understand the policy paralysis in Japan. The Bank of Japan does not want to be given objectives it can't meet. But, you know, you can do QE in the foreign exchange market. It's basically unsterilized intervention. And all they've got to do is uh, sell yen, buy dollars, push their currency cheaper. And it would also improve domestic liquidity. And they didn't even mention it in the phone call with the prime minister. Mm. So amazing. The Bank of Japan said they want to keep further QE for emergency. Maybe there's just too much focus, attention on them. They they mm. don't want to do anything. They're just going to catch everyone by surprise. I'd love to be surprised by a significant monetary easing in Japan. They did talk about a fiscal expansion, which uh, I suppose, you know, that can buy some votes. But obviously, as you mentioned earlier, and we were discussing this beforehand, their debt level is nearly two times GDP, so nearly 200% of GDP. Mm. And although they are huge creditors and basically owe it themselves, what did you say the size of the fiscal package proposed was? It's about half a percent of GDP. So, so not nothing, it's not but not dramatic. Can't imagine that's going to turn around the economy anyway. So the economy's in one of those muddle-through phases where the United States looks to me to be most likely to lead the developed countries out. We haven't talked much about emerging markets, but Asia still looks strong to me. We still think China's having a soft landing, but that's kind of in the price. Everybody has kind of agreed that. And even when risk was coming off last week, the Asian currency didn't really suffer that much. So Asians are given, probably. And with Europe looking strong, that's a real support there because they can withstand a slowdown in the United States, providing Europe's okay. But we're still caught between this conflict. What we want to buy is too expensive. What we want to sell is too cheap. So it's a struggle. That's what Newsflow would do. Now, Lawrence is away this week, I think partly as a result of the dreadful footballing mm-hmm. results. Now, regular listeners would know that I'm a Newcastle supporter. He's a West Ham supporter. So West Ham lost to Aston Villa last week, and we beat them 6-0. <laughs> so good result for Newcastle. Poor old West Ham. Worst start of the season. Dear, oh dear, oh dear. This was Loz and Belly. Loz and Belly was this week presented by Stephen Bell and Celia Sepping. The programme is produced by Fit to Fill for GLC Limited. This podcast is issued for information purposes only and is intended to give only general economic views on the market. It is not intended as a solicitation to invest. No representation, warranty or undertaking, express or implied, is given as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or opinions contained in this podcast by any of GLC Limited, its directors or employees. No liabilities accepted by such persons for the accuracy or completeness of any such information or opinions. As such, no reliance may be placed for any purpose on the information and opinions contained in this podcast, nor do they constitute investment advice. GLC Limited is authorised and regulated by the Financial Services Authority in the United Kingdom.